Chapter 67, Part 1 of the History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 6, by Edward Gibbon. Chapter 67, Part 1. Schism of the Greeks and Latins. Reign and character of Amurat II. Crusade of Ladislaus, King of Hungary. His defeat and death. John Huniades. Skanderbeg. Constantine Palaeologus, last emperor of the East. The respective merits of Rome and Constantinople are compared and celebrated by an eloquent Greek, the father of the Italian schools. The view of the ancient capital, the seat of his ancestors, surpassed the most sanguine expectations of Emmanuel Chrysoloras, and he no longer blamed the exclamation of an old sophist that Rome was the habitation not of men, but of gods. Those gods and those men had long since vanished, but to the eye of liberal enthusiasm, the majesty of ruin restored the image of her ancient prosperity. The monuments of the consuls and Caesars, of the martyrs and apostles, engaged on all sides the curiosity of the philosopher and the Christian, and he confessed that in every age the arms and religion of Rome were destined to reign over the earth. While Chrysoloras admired the venerable beauties of the mother, he was not forgetful of his native country, her first daughter, her imperial colony, and the Byzantine patriot expatiates with zeal and truth on the eternal advantages of nature and the more transitory glories of art and dominion, which adorned or had adorned the city of Constantine. Yet the perfection of the copy still redounds, as he modestly observes, to the honour of the original, and parents are delighted to be renewed, and even excelled, by the superior merit of their children. Constantinople, says the orator, is situated on a commanding point between Europe and Asia, between the archipelago and the Euxine. By her interposition, the two seas and the two continents are united for the common benefit of nations, and the gates of commerce may be shut and opened at her command. The harbour, encompassed on all sides by the sea and the continent, is the most secure and capacious in the world. The walls and gates of Constantinople may be compared with those of Babylon. The towers many, each tower is a solid and lofty structure, and the second wall, the outer fortification, would be sufficient for the defence and dignity of an ordinary capital. A broad and rapid stream may be introduced into the ditches, and the artificial island may be encompassed, like Athens, by land or water. Two strong and natural causes are leagued for the perfection of the model of New Rome. The royal founder reigned over the most illustrious nations of the globe, and in the accomplishment of his designs, the power of the Romans was combined with the art and science of the Greeks. Other cities have been reared to maturity by accident and time. Their beauties are mingled with disorder and deformity, and the inhabitants, unwilling to remove from their natal spot, are incapable of correcting the errors of their ancestors and the original vices of situational climate. But the free idea of Constantinople was formed and executed by a single mind, and the primitive model was improved by the obedient zeal of the subjects and successors of the first monarch. The adjacent isles were stored with an inexhaustible supply of marble, 
but the various materials were transported from the most remote shores of europe and asia and the public and private buildings the palaces churches aqueducts cisterns porticos columns baths and hippodromes were adapted to the greatness of the capital of the east the superfluity of wealth was spread along the shores of europe and asia and the byzantine territory as far as the euxine the hellespont and the long wall might be considered as a populous suburb and a perpetual garden in this flattering picture the past and the present the times of prosperity and decay are artfully confounded but as i and the confession escape from the orator that his wretched country was the shadow and sepulchre of its former self the works of ancient sculpture had been defaced by christian zeal or barbaric violence the fairest structures were demolished and the marbles of paros or numidia were burnt for lime or applied to the meanest uses of many a statue the place was marked by an empty pedestal of many a column the size was determined by a broken capital the tombs of the emperors were scattered on the ground the stroke of time was accelerated by storms and earthquakes and the vacant space was adorned by vulgar tradition with fabulous monuments of gold and silver from these wonders which lived only in memory or belief he distinguishes however the porphyry pillar the column and colossus of justinian and the church more especially the dome of saint sophia the best conclusion since it could not be described according to its merits and after it no other object could deserve to be mentioned but he forgets that a century before the trembling fabrics of the colossus and the church had been saved and supported by the timely care of andronicus the elder thirty years after the emperor had fortified saint sophia with two new buttresses or pyramids the eastern hemisphere suddenly gave way and the images the altars and the sanctuary were crushed by the falling ruin the mischief indeed was speedily repaired the rubbish was cleared by the incessant labour of every rank and age and the poor remains of riches and industry were consecrated by the greeks to the most stately and venerable temple of the east the last hope of the falling city and empire was placed in the harmony of the mother and daughter in the maternal tenderness of rome and the filial obedience of constantinople in the synod of florence the greeks and latins had embraced and subscribed and promised but these signs of friendship were perfidious or fruitless and the baseless fabric of the union vanished like a dream the emperor and his prelates returned home in the venetian galleys but as they touched at the morea and the isles of corfu and lesbos the subjects of the latins complained that the pretended union would be an instrument of oppression no sooner did they land on the byzantine shore than they were saluted or rather assailed with a general murmur of zeal and discontent during their absence above two years the capital had been deprived of its civil and ecclesiastical rulers fanaticism fermented in anarchy the most furious monks reigned over the conscience of women and bigots and hatred of the latin name was the first principle of nature and religion before his departure for italy the emperor had flattered the city with the assurance of a prompt relief and a powerful succor and the clergy confident in their orthodoxy and science had promised themselves and their flocks an easy victory over the blind shepherds of the west the double disappointment exasperated the greeks the conscience of the subscribing prelates was awakened the hour of temptation was past and they had more to dread from the public resentment than they could hope from the favour of the emperor or the pope 
Instead of justifying their conduct, they deplored their weakness, professed their contrition, and cast themselves on the mercy of God and their brethren. To the reproachful question, what had been the event or the use of the Italian synod, they answered with sighs and tears, Alas, we have made a new faith, we have exchanged piety for impiety, we have betrayed the immaculate sacrifice, and we are become Azimites. The Azimites were those who celebrated the communion with unleavened bread, and I must retract or qualify the praise which I have bestowed on the growing philosophy of the times. Alas, we have been seduced by distress, by fraud, and by the hopes and fears of transitory life. The hand that has signed the union should be cut off, and the tongue that has pronounced the Latin creed deserves to be torn from the root. The best proof of their repentance was an increase of zeal for the most trivial rites and the most incomprehensible doctrines, and an absolute separation from all without excepting their prince, who preserved some regard for honor and consistency. After the decease of the patriarch Joseph, the archbishops of Heraclea and Trebizond had courage to refuse the vacant office, and Cardinal Bessarion preferred the warm and comfortable shelter of the Vatican. The choice of the emperor and his clergy was confined to Metrophanes of Sucicus. He was consecrated in St. Sophia, but the temple was vacant. The cross-bearers abdicated their service, the infection spread from the city to the villages, and Metrophanes discharged, without effect, some ecclesiastical thunders against the nation of schismatics. The eyes of the Greeks were directed to Mark of Ephesus, the champion of his country, and the sufferings of the holy confessor were repaid with a tribute of admiration and applause. His example and writings propagated the flame of religious discord. Age and infirmity soon removed him from the world, but the gospel of Mark was not a law of forgiveness, and he requested with his dying breath that none of the adherents of Rome might attend the obsequies or pray for his soul. The schism was not confined to the narrow limits of the Byzantine Empire. Secure under the Mameluk sceptre, the three patriarchs of Alexandria, Antioch, and Jerusalem assembled numerous synod, disowned their representatives at Ferrara and Florence, condemned the creed and council of the Latins, and threatened the emperor of Constantinople with the censures of the Eastern Church. Of the sectaries of the Greek communion, the Russians were the most powerful, ignorant, and superstitious. Their primate, the Cardinal Isidore, hastened from Florence to Moscow, to reduce the independent nation under the Roman yoke. But the Russian bishops had been educated at Mount Athos, and the prince and people embraced the theology of their priests. They were scandalized by the title, the pomp, the Latin cross of the legate, the friend of those impious men who shaved their beards and performed the divine office with gloves on their hands and rings on their fingers. Isidore was condemned by a synod, his person was imprisoned in a monastery, and it was with extreme difficulty that the cardinal could escape from the hands of a fierce and fanatic people. The Russians refused the passage to the missionaries of Rome who aspired to convert the pagans beyond the Tanais, and their refusal was justified by the maxim that the guilt of idolatry is less damnable than that of schism. The errors of the Bohemians were excused by their abhorrence for the Pope, and the deputation of the Greek clergy, solicited the friendship of those sanguinary enthusiasts. While Eugenius triumphed in the union and orthodoxy of the Greeks, his party was contracted to the walls, or rather to the palace of Constantinople. 
the seal of Palaeologus, had been excited by interest, it was soon cooled by opposition. An attempt to vitiate the national belief might endanger his life and crown. Not could the pious rebels be destitute of foreign and domestic aid. The sword of his brother Demetrius, who in Italy had maintained a prudent and popular silence, was half unsheathed in the cause of religion, and Amurath, Turkish sultan, was displeased and alarmed by the seeming friendship of the Greeks and Latins. Sultan Murad, or Amurath, lived forty-nine and reigned thirty years, six months, and eight days. He was a just and valiant prince, of a great soul, patient of labors, learned, merciful, religious, charitable, a lover and encourager of the studious, and of all who excelled in any art or science, a good emperor and a great general. No man obtained more or greater victories than Amurath. Belgrade alone withstood his attacks. On his reign, the soldier was ever victorious, the citizen rich and secure. If he subdued any country, his first care was to build mosques and caravanseras, hospitals and colleges. Every year he gave a thousand pieces of gold to the sons of the prophet, and sent two thousand five hundred to the religious persons of Mecca, Medina and Jerusalem. This portrait is transcribed from the historian of the Ottoman Empire, but the applause of a servile and superstitious people has been lavished on the worst of tyrants, and the virtues of a sultan are often devices most useful to himself, or most agreeable to his subjects. A nation ignorant of the equal benefits of liberty and law must be awed by the flashes of arbitrary power. The cruelty of a despot will assume the character of justice, his profusion of liberality, his obstinacy of firmness. If the most reasonable excuse be rejected, few acts of obedience will be found impossible, and guilt must tremble where innocence cannot always be secure. The tranquillity of the people, and the discipline of his troops, were best maintained by perpetual action in the field. War was the trade of the Janissaries, and those who survived the peril, and divided the spoil, applauded the generous ambition of their sovereign. To propagate the true religion was the duty of the faithful Mussulman. The unbelievers were his enemies, and those of the Prophet, and, in the hands of the Turks, the scimitar was the only instrument of conversion. Under these circumstances, however, the justice and moderation of Amurath are attested by his conduct, and acknowledged by the Christians themselves, who consider a prosperous reign and a peaceful death as the reward of his singular merits. In the vigor of his age and military power, he seldom engaged in war till he was justified by a previous and adequate provocation. The victorious sultan was disarmed by submission, and in the observance of treaties, his word was inviolate and sacred. The Hungarians were commonly the aggressors. He was provoked by the revolt of Skanderbeg, and the perfidious Karamanian was twice vanquished and twice pardoned by the Ottoman monarch. Before he invaded the Morea, Thebes had been surprised by the despot, in the conquest of Thessalonica, the grandson of Bazajet might dispute the recent purchase of the Venetians, and after the first siege of Constantinople, the sultan was never tempted by the distress, the absence, or the injuries of Palaeologus to extinguish the dying light of the Byzantine Empire. But the most striking feature in the life and character of Amurath is the double abdication of the Turkish throne, and, were not his motives debased by an alloy of superstition, we must praise the royal philosopher, 
who at the age of forty could discern the vanity of human greatness. Resigning the sceptre to his son, he retired to the pleasant residence of Magnesia, but he retired to the society of saints and hermits. It was not till the fourth century of the Hegira that the religion of Mahomet had been corrupted by an institution so adverse to his genius, but in the age of the Crusades, the various orders of dervishes were multiplied by the example of the Christian, and even the Latin monks. The lord of nations submitted to fast and pray, and turned round in endless rotation with the fanatics, who mistook the giddiness of the head for the illumination of the spirit. But he was soon awakened from his dreams of enthusiasm by the Hungarian invasion, and his obedient son was the foremost to urge the public danger and the wishes of the people. Under the banner of their veteran leader, the Janissaries fought and conquered, but he withdrew from the field of Varna, again to pray, to fast, and to turn round with his Magnesian brethren. These pious occupations were again interrupted by the danger of the state. A victorious army disdained the inexperience of their youthful ruler. The city of Adrianople was abandoned to rapine and slaughter, and the unanimous divan implored his presence to appease the tumult and prevent the rebellion of the Janissaries. At the well-known voice of their master, they trembled and obeyed, and the reluctant sultan was compelled to support his splendid servitude, till at the end of four years he was relieved by the angel of death. Age or disease, misfortune or caprice, have tempted several princes to descend from the throne, and they have had leisure to repent of their irretrievable step. But Amurat alone, in the full liberty of choice, after the trial of empire and solitude, has repeated his preference of private life. After the departure of his Greek brethren, Eugenius had not been unmindful of their temporal interests, and his tender regard for the Byzantine Empire was animated by just apprehension of the Turks, who approached and might soon invade the borders of Italy. But the spirit of the Crusades had expired, and the coldness of the Franks was not less unreasonable than their headlong passion. In the eleventh century, a fanatic monk could precipitate Europe on Asia for the recovery of the Holy Sepulchre, but in the fifteenth, the most pressing motives of religion and policy were insufficient to unite the Latins in the defense of Christendom. Germany was an inexhaustible storehouse of men and arms, but that complex and languid body required the impulse of a vigorous hand, and Frederick III was alike impotent in his personal character and his imperial dignity. A long war had impaired the strength, without satiating the animosity of France and England. But Philip, Duke of Burgundy, was a vain and magnificent prince, and he enjoyed, without danger or expense, the adventurous piety of his subjects, who sailed, in a gallant fleet, from the coast of Flanders to the Hellespont. The maritime republics of Venice and Genoa were less remote from the scene of action, and their hostile fleets were associated under the standard of St. Peter. The kingdoms of Hungary and Poland, which covered, as it were, the interior pale of the Latin Church, were the most nearly concerned to oppose the progress of the Turks. Arms were the patrimony of the Scythians and Sarmatians, and these nations might appear equal to the context, could they point, against the common foe, those swords that were so wantonly drawn in bloody and domestic quarrels. But the same spirit was adverse to concord and obedience, a poor country and a limited monarch are incapable of maintaining a standing force, and the loose bodies of Polish and Hungarian horse were not armed with the sentiments and weapons which, on some occasions, have given irresistible weight to the French chivalry. 
Yet on this side, the designs of the Roman pontiff, and the eloquence of Cardinal Julian, his legate, were promoted by the circumstances of the times, by the union of the two crowns on the head of Ladislaus, a young and ambitious soldier, by the valor of a hero whose name, the name of John Huniades, was already popular among the Christians, and formidable to the Turks. An endless treasure of pardons and indulgences was scattered by the legate, Many private warriors of France and Germany enlisted under the holy banner, and the crusade derived some strength, or at least some reputation, from the new allies both of Europe and Asia. A fugitive despot of Serbia exaggerated the distress and ardor of the Christians beyond the Danube, who would unanimously rise to vindicate their religion and liberty. The Greek emperor, with a spirit unknown to his fathers, engaged to guard the Bosphorus, and to sally from Constantinople at the head of his national and mercenary troops. The Sultan of Karamania announced the retreat of Amurat, and a powerful diversion in the heart of Anatolia, and if the fleets of the West could occupy at the same moment the Straits of the Hellespont, the Ottoman monarchy would be dissevered and destroyed. Heaven and earth must rejoice in the perdition of the miscreants, and the legates, with prudent ambiguity, instilled the opinion of the invisible, perhaps the visible, aid of the Son of God and His Divine Mother. Of the Polish and Hungarian diets, a religious war was the unanimous cry, and Ladislaus, after passing the Danube, led an army of his confederate subjects as far as Sofia, the capital of the Bulgarian kingdom. In this expedition they obtained two signal victories, which were justly ascribed to the valor and conduct of Huniades. In the first, with a vanguard of ten thousand men, he surprised the Turkish camp. In the second, he vanquished and made prisoner the most renowned of their generals, who possessed the double advantage of ground and numbers. The approach of winter, and the natural and artificial obstacles of Mount Hamus, arrested the progress of the hero, who measured a narrow interval of six days' march from the foot of the mountains to the hostile towers of Adrianople, and the friendly capital of the Greek Empire. The retreat was undisturbed, and the entrance into Buddha was at once a military and religious triumph. An ecclesiastical procession was followed by the king and his warriors of foot. He nicely balanced the merits and rewards of the two nations, and the pride of conquest was blended with the humble temper of Christianity. Thirteen bashos, nine standards, and four thousand captives were unquestionable trophies, and as all were willing to believe, and none were present to contradict, the crusaders multiplied, with unblushing confidence, the myriads of Turks whom they had left on the fields of battle. The most solid proof, and the most salutary consequence of victory, was the deputation from the divan to solicit peace, to restore Serbia, to ransom the prisoners, and to evacuate the Hungarian frontier. By this treaty, the rational objects of the war were obtained, the king, the despot, and Huniades himself, in the diet of Segedin, were satisfied with public and private emolument. A truce of ten years was concluded, and the followers of Jesus and Mohammed, who swore on the gospel and the Koran, attested the word of God as the guardian of truth and the avenger of perfidy. In the place of the gospel, the Turkish ministers had proposed to substitute the Eucharist, the real presence of the Catholic deity, but the Christians refused to profane their holy mysteries and the superstitious conscience is less forcibly bound by the spiritual energy than by the outward and visible symbols of an oath. During the whole transaction, the cardinal legate had observed a sullen silence, 
unwilling to approve, and unable to oppose the consent of the king and people. But the Diet was not dissolved before Julian was fortified by the welcome intelligence that Anatolia was invaded by the Caramanian, and Thrace by the Greek emperor, that the fleets of Genoa, Venice, and Burgundy were masters of the Hellespont, and that the allies, informed of the victory and ignorant of the treaty of Ladislaus, impatiently waited for the return of his victorious army. And it is thus, explained the cardinal, that you will desert their expectations and your own fortune. It is to them, to your God and your fellow Christians, that you have pledged your faith, and that prior obligation annihilates a rash and sacrilegious oath to the enemies of Christ. His vicar on earth is the Roman pontiff, without whose sanction you can neither promise nor perform. In his name I absolve your perjury and sanctify your arms. I follow your footsteps in the path of glory and salvation, and if still ye have scruples, devolve on my head the punishment and the sin. This mischievous casuistry was seconded by his respectable character, and the levity of popular assemblies. War was resolved on the same spot where peace had so lately been sworn, and in the execution of the treaty, the Turks were assaulted by the Christians, to whom, with some reason, they might apply the epithet of infidels. The falsehood of Ladislaus to his word and oath was palliated by the religion of the times. The most perfect, or at least most popular excuse, would have been the success of his arms and the deliverance of the Eastern Church. But the same treaty which should have bound his conscience had diminished his strength. On the proclamation of the peace, the French and German volunteers departed with indignant murmurs. The Poles were exhausted by distant warfare, and perhaps disgusted with foreign command, and their palatines accepted the first license, and hastily retired to their provinces and castles. Even Hungary was divided by faction, or restrained by a laudable scruple, and the relics of the crusade that marched in the second expedition were reduced to an inadequate force of twenty thousand men. A Wallachian chief, who joined the royal standards with his vassals, presumed to remark that their numbers did not exceed the hunting retinue that sometimes attended the sultan, and the gift of two horses of matchless speed might admonish Ladislaus of his secret foresight of the event. But the despot of Serbia, after the restoration of his country and children, was tempted by the promise of new realms, and the inexperience of the king, the enthusiasm of the legate, and the martial presumption of Huniades himself, were persuaded that every obstacle must yield to the invincible virtue of the sword and the cross. After the passage of the Danube, two roads might lead to Constantinople and the Hellespont, the one direct, abrupt, and difficult through the mountains of Hemus, the other more tedious and secure over a level country and along the shores of Euxin, in which their flanks, according to the Scythian discipline, might always be covered by a movable fortification of wagons. The latter was judiciously preferred, the Catholics marched through the plains of Bulgaria, burning with wanton cruelty the churches and villages of the Christian natives. And the last station was at Varna, near the seashore, on which the defeat and death of Ladislaus have bestowed a memorable name. End of chapter 67, part 1. Recording by Monsbru, Helsingfors, Finland.